Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So help us to be in that presence, help us to be in that moment, and uh, cause us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open and surrendered and vulnerable before you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So this morning, um, we're going to be continuing our... um, study from the book of John, and um, the, um, so um, what what we're going to be looking at is, um, is we're going to be taking the next step, so for those of you who haven't been with us, um, I'm going to give you the, the 30 second rundown, uh, the 30 second rundown is that, or not the first thing you have to know about the 30-second rundown is about five minutes long. Um, but the 30-second rundown is that um, we um, discovered that the the early church, so for about the first hundred years of the church, um, they would utilize the Gospel of John as their text all throughout the fast of Lent leading into Easter. So they found that there was something unique and specific about John that led them through the necessary um, dying of Lent into the feasting of resurrection that we call Easter. And John's text is doing something that's very interesting. The text of John is unlike any other text in, in in the Bible, unlike any other text in the Gospels. You know, we have... Four Gospels, um, it's funny because people oftentimes will talk about, what's the Gospel? Well, the Gospel is actually, according to the early church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel is not um, all of this stuff about how do you accept Jesus into your heart. Probably a good idea. But the Gospel is the story of the kingdom coming to earth through Jesus. The presence of God. The story of the Gospel is that there's good news. And that the good news of Jesus, the good, the real good news, is not good news that comes through power. It's not good news that comes through violence. It's not good news that comes through greed or through privilege. 
or perceives the real good news is that everyone, everyone, everyone can live a life more abundantly. That's good news. And the good news is that it's here and it's now. In fact, Jesus said that we don't have to wait until some distant thing that's going to happen. Like, you know, where all of a sudden the clouds open up and Jesus comes back on, um, you know, a a bigger version of My Little Pony and uh, with like the rainbow. Uh, And Jesus comes through the sky and all of a sudden everything is, uh, you know, we're raptured up and we get out of here. Jesus did not come to give us an evacuation plan. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundant. And so John tells us that. And John reframes, unlike anybody else, the, the story of the creation. So John takes the, the, the seven-day creation story and says, I want to frame things in a way because the Jewish people believed, and we're going to talk about this specifically today, the Jewish people believed that there was one God. The only challenge to that God is they believed that God was the creator of all, but they did not believe that God and Yahweh that, that we find in the Jewish scriptures is the God that is father to all. So they believed that God created all things. They're, they were monotheists in that regard. But they did not believe that everybody was was fathered Not everybody was a child of God. So it was essentially, yep, God created all this stuff, but we're the only ones who are in. That sounds great, doesn't it? That's great if you're a Jew, (laughs) right? And and, uh, and I'm not being uh, uh, denigrating the Jewish people. That's just, that was Jewish code. And that was the worldview they had at that time. So what John says is, oh, wait, it's bigger and better than that. So John is writing saying, you're right. God is the creator of all, but he's also the father of all. So he has to start back at Genesis in the creation story and widen it out to say the whole thing is the garden. He's telling us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the presence of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what he's telling us. He's telling us that the whole thing is a temple. The universe is the temple of God. That should mess with you a little bit. Like, the earth is the church. That is the structure where God lives. The universe. And so John is doing this, and it's really, really radical. And so as you walk through the Gospel of John, you find there are these really unique high points. And um, there are sevens that happen over and over. There's seven miracles that happen. He calls them signs. John's Gospel is the only one that numbers the signs and gives us seven. John's Gospel is the only one that starts and ends in a garden. John's Gospel is all about the creation story being retold in a bigger, more universal fashion. And the day and age we live, that word universal is very, very triggering for some people. But the reality of it is, that's that's what John's doing. He's saying, you had it right, it's just bigger than that. And if I could 
say something to us American Christians, we have it right. It's just bigger than us. The gospel that isn't good news for everyone is not good news for anyone. If it's not good news for everybody, then it's not good news. It's good news if you were born in America. It's good news if you were born on this side of the cross. But for everybody else, it's not good news. It has to be good news for everybody, and that's what John's preaching. So we're going to look this morning at John chapter 8. And uh, um, thank you, Brittany, for this beautiful picture. Um, We're going to start in John chapter 8. I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot today, only um, to save time. And... um, we're going to try to get this done, and then following this, I need to get this on my phone, uh, following our conversation this morning, we're going to have a time of conversation together, so we call it Q&I, we don't do Q&I because I don't like conversation. Um, I think there's a, a sense of creepiness that comes with it. I actually saw a church slide that I was looking for kind of a Q&I slide, and it said, you've got questions, we've got answers, and I was like, mm-mm. Mm-mm. If you put that on me, Bishop Bobby, we're not doing that. So um, so we're going to look this morning at John chapter 8. If you remember, contextually, this is immediately following two major things. This is following, the fe- in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, this is in the context of the woman caught in the act of adultery. This is in the context of Jesus saying, if you're thirsty, come to me, all who are thirsty. I will be the one you drink from. And then he says, I'm the light of the world. So all of this big stuff is just happening. And somehow, in my opinion, this gets kind of lost in the mix um, just because of the great stuff that's going on around it. So John chapter 8, verse 19. Then they said unto him, where is your father? And Jesus answered and said, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Just throwing out some stuff there. Okay, so contextually speaking, so Feast of Tabernacles, a quick 30-second version of that because you have to know where and why and what. If you start with bad questions, you'll typically end up with what? Bad answers. So, the context is the Feast of Tabernacles is happening. The Feast of Tabernacles is an eight-day Jewish feast that they would host in Jerusalem where all of the Jews would come back into the city. And for eight days, they would feast in celebration of deliverance. And they would feast in celebration of what happened coming out of Egypt. The through-line story of all of the Israel story is deliverance from Egypt. The exodus is the story of Israel. That is the pinnacle to them. So everything that they think about in the kingdom coming and what God does and how God loves them is all about the exodus. It's all about how do people who are bound get free? So, they're 
they're talking about for eight days they're celebrating the story so they they build these little huts like these little shanties and they stay in uh, it would be like us uh, putting a tent in our backyard they do that for eight days they live in these outside in the in their yard because they're representing how they lived in the wilderness and they're celebrating that God provided for them and for eight days they teach and teach and teach and teach and teach about two things water and light so if you have any questions about how those come in we'll reference the last two teachings we talked about why Jesus does the water thing and the light thing but that's the context so the culmination of this feast happens and Jesus is now standing in the temple now if you've been paying attention he's been standing in the temple for a while right he's been there for a bit because if you remember Jesus they culminate the feast of tabernacles on the eighth day by lighting the final torches in the middle of the temple literally at this point they said that Israel was a and it was one solid light you could see for miles and miles some said hundreds of miles away because they would light more and more candles literally um, the menorah that they had outside of the temple that they would light on the eighth day was seven stories tall so they would climb on these ladders seven story ladder I don't even know what it's that's that's crazy a seven story ladder they would climb um, and and they would light this candle and as they light that candle what they're celebrating is they're celebrating the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness and as they light that Jesus says I am the light of the world if you come to me you no longer have to traverse in darkness so Jesus finishes this statement and he goes back to teaching. So he's in the tab in the temple. So he's at all of these exchanges. And it's almost like he's just in the temple and all these people keep coming to him with these other things. Like they come to him and they throw the woman caught in the act of adultery in front of him. And then they come to him and they ask him about the light of the world. Like all of these things distract. But he's just trying to give a sermon. So it would be like literally we're in the middle of church. I'm trying to share some stuff or or you're trying to share some stuff. And all and they and they keep getting interrupted. It's just real life. And so in the midst of this, he's standing in the temple, but it would appear if you if you study how this would have worked, that Jesus has been moving forward through the temple as this happened. He started in the area that's the outer court where you would have been able to see the menorah. Now he's moving in while he's still talking and this crowd is following him and he's getting closer and closer to the inner parts of the temple. There's two reasons why this is important. The first reason is that as you got from the outer court to the inner court of the temple, what there was a big sign that said, if you're not a Jew and you step foot in here, we will cut off your head. If you were not, it was something more to the extent of, um, uh, um, if you step inside of this, your death is on your head, more or less is what they said. So Jesus is walking towards, so at this point they suggest that he's, probably standing by this sign and he's saying to the people that had prevented God from being accessible to all people he's your father 
and he's talking to them about who his father is and how his father is different than their father. And he starts talking to them as he gets closer to notice this. While he did this, he was eating near the what of the temple. Church has become big business. So according to the law, what you had to do is you had to bring money to uh, to the church. Church, again, same title to the church so you could buy the sacrifice. And interestingly enough, you had to have special animals to sacrifice. So they had to have special sheep and special doves and special oxen because most of these people, keep in your mind, everybody that was there was not from Jerusalem. So you didn't carry sheep on your back for hundreds of miles to get back to Jerusalem. You bought sheep in Jerusalem. So if Jerusalem now has is able to sell the thing that you need to acquire atonement from God, that is supply and demand 101. Like, okay, you want to be, you want to in some way be purified from your sins? I've got what you need. And so here's the other thing, though, that got really interesting. So everybody is, is walking around with the coin of the day. On the coin of the day is Caesar's face. And below that, it says something really interesting. Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's what the coin of Caesar says. So Jesus is standing outside the treasury. The reason the treasury is so interesting is they wouldn't allow people to use Caesar's money to purchase Jesus' money. They had to exchange the money into Jewish money and then walk to the next table and give him that money and get the best. So do you see how churches establish structures and systems and create hoops for people to jump through to get to church? It's like you've got to do this and then this and then this. We create the system that tells you you have to have the animal, and then we tell you that in order to get the animal, you have to do this and this and this and this. So we create systems that say that everybody is born into sin and separation from God, but then we tell them we can get you unseparated. This is what systemic religion does. And Christianity is not unique in that. Every Every religion, by and large, does this where we say, okay, look, you are broken and separate. But if you come to us and become part of our membership and club and for a nominal fee of 10% of your earnings, that's net, mind you. You can pay your membership dues into our club and be unseparated. Are we that different than the temple? So Jesus is standing outside of the treasury, and he's doing that on purpose. He literally would have been, because the thing that's unique is that the because just like any um, anyone would when you're in charge, the people who sat just behind the tables sat in huge chairs, and these were the high priests. They oversaw the money. Anybody know why they might have overseen the money? Who do you think got the money? They did. 
If you actually read Old Testament law, Old Testament law was all the money that came into the temple. It was called temple tax at the time. It wasn't called tithe. It was called temple tax. Temple tax was designed by God so that no one in the community would go without. Temple tax was where you came to church, you gave your money, and it was the priest's job because the priest was not in need of anything. The priest's job was to make sure all of the money that came in went back out to the poor, the widow, and the orphan so that everybody had enough. But the system had devolved to such a degree that the, the priests were now living in these mansions they actually discovered in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., but they've actually discovered where these homes were like, I mean, lavish mansions with multiple, like, whirlpools in them, uh, what, what we would call these bags, these mikvehs. And they actually have found a, uh, in some of them, one specifically, they found a bottle of wine that in today's market, if we're using, like, uh, what's it, inflation ratios, in today's market, it would have been a $10,000 bottle of wine. So that's why they sat behind the mansion. So what they did is they, they would sit there and they would watch and see as people gave. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't know my father. So Jesus is saying, God is my father, which is a shocking statement. Now, I need to clarify a couple things, because if you grew up like I did, um, there are a few elements of this that are really important to context. The first is fatherhood. Now, I was always taught, and, and you can say no uh, if it's not what you were taught, but I was always taught that the thing that made Jesus' message so radical and that got him killed was that he said God was his father. Anybody ever heard that? That Jesus was the first one to ever use father language for God, and that's what got him killed. Okay? Pretty fair to what everybody says? I'd like to read to you uh, from the Israel Biblical Institute. So this is like the Jewish rabbis who speak on behalf of Jewish culture for this time. It is important to realize that rabbinic literature stands in continuity with biblical literature. Hence, its reference to God the Father constitutes a complete um, continuation of the biblical patterns that are found. Most significant in this case is the realization that God is not presented the father of the world, but the idea of God as father was completely normal to the Jewish people. God as father of the world was not known, but God as father was not something that was foreign to them in any way. God is presented as the father to Israel, and I'm not aware of a single biblical text that changes or contradicts the notion of God as father of Israel. So, I always was taught that, the, that Jesus, what did Jesus come to reveal to us? I know people have heard this now. He came to reveal God as father, because nobody had known God as father. Well, guess what? That's just not true. The Jewish people were completely, 
completely comfortable with God as father. They were only comfortable, though, with God as father of Israel. That's significant. That's deeply changing. So it wasn't at all that they were saying that it was a big deal that Jesus is talking about using father language for God. In fact, I found 12 references to that in the Old Testament alone. So what is unique about that message of Jesus is not all of a sudden he's using father language for God. What's unique about the fatherhood is he's saying God is the father of all. All our children are God. Everybody's in the family. And I'm sorry, but it's not much different than church today. If you walk into church and say everybody's in the family, people get uncomfortable. People are okay with, yeah, everybody is, everybody can be part of the family. See, we're okay with potential family. It's a nuanced difference, but it's an important difference. It's like the idea that Jesus came so that you would have the potential for forgiveness. That's what I was taught. Like, it's out there for you. You have the potential to be forgiven. You just have to believe and pray this prayer. That is completely contrary to the orthodoxy of our faith. Everyone, everywhere has been forgiven. For everyone. And that makes us super uncomfortable. Because we really like the ability to own it. Because owning it keeps us in control. Earning it keeps us in control. And removes the necessity for forgiveness. And so what Jesus is saying is, the Hittite, God's their father. The Canaanite, God's their father. The Samaritan, God's their father. And the challenge we have for the Jewish people is they weren't very comfortable with that because as soon as that's the case, they have then been saying, I am slaving who were already in the family. Are we much different? The Crusades could only happen if the Muslim people were not as civilized. Do you get where I'm going here? As soon as the image of God is something that is dependent upon a prayer where you have to accept this and then you're in or you have to believe like me or whatever our criteria is, then I can recognize the image of God. It's easy for me to see the image of God in you. You're like me. All that does is reinforce my biases of what I already believe. But as soon as I have to see the image of God in refugee children or in Mayan children in Mexico that Lauren was telling me are at the bottom of the caste system, I've got some thinking to do about how we treat people. So God is father of all. The reason they were uncomfortable with it is it put a mirror to their actions. And so what Jesus first does is he says, no, no, no. God is father of all. Second thing that he does is in the context, he says something, and I, I, don't, I don't remember where it is. I, I messed it up. He says this really interesting thing. 
um, about what it might mean to be saved. So Jesus says, um, again, I am going away and you will search for me. So this is, well, there's a lot here. So there's, Jesus says, I'm going away. You're going to search for me. But um, if you don't find me, you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you can't come. You are from below and I'm from above. I am not of this world. Um, for I told you that I am of my father. So there's a lot that's happening here. But we have to untangle all of our ideas in language about what comes from above and below and what it might mean to die in our sin. Because we think now. So in our now thinking, heaven's up there, hell's down there, and the earth is here. And so Jesus came from the clouds. I came from above. That's not what he's talking about. Culturally speaking, good things always come from above. So he's just giving a metaphorical reference. Rain. They Keeping in mind, they had just been celebrating and saying that God gives rain as a feast. So rain speaks of abundance and life and supply. The sun, they've just been talking about light. And so I am like the sun. I'm the son of God. So he's saying I am like that where goodness comes from and where life comes from and where acceptance comes from. And so he's not talking to them about salvation in that sense. What he's talking to them about is how do we understand that Jesus goes on and says, look, there is a way that you're following that leads to death. I'm offering life. The way that they were walking that led to death literally was the death and destruction of Jerusalem. Literally, what he's saying is, he goes on to say, if you live by the sword, you will what? Die by the sword. So they were trying to overthrow Rome, the occupying Roman army, with the sword. And what he's saying is, that way leads to death. I mean, it's some, in some ways, it's more simple than we thought. It's more, it's just right in front of us. There is no such thing as good violence. There just isn't. Even in the best of intentions, even in the best of moments, it just breeds more violence. And so Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. So this would have been deeply offensive because part of what Israel believed, thinking that that they were the only ones that were God was their father, is also they believed that they were the only one that had life eternal. Now, there was different thoughts about what that would have meant, and at this point in time, more than likely, they would have believed in a Babylonian-style resurrection, which would have meant that at some point, their physical body, so when they died, they would have went to like a paradise place. Sometimes they call it Sheol. It's not positive or negative. It is just the place of the dead. Now, there was some thought and some teaching that would have said that in the place of the dead, uh, there's there's maybe some, um, like the place where the light is and the place where the darkness is. But it was very mystical and undefined. It wasn't anything like ours is very, like if I ask somebody this, I think there are more Christians, or there are some Christians that are more convinced of hell than they are of the gospel. Like they would have an easier time describing and defining to me eternal punishment than they would what the good news is. Is that fair or am I being 
that fair. And so for them, it wasn't like that. It wasn't about that. It was it was that if you're a Jew, there's this place of death that you're going to go, and then all of our physical bodies are going to be raised again because they believed in a bodily resurrection. So what Jesus is saying is you're going to die, and that's going to be it. And they're saying, wait, what? You don't know who we are because we're children of Abraham. So the next thing is this treasury, which we've already talked about. Jesus, by this point, would have been standing by the treasury, and he would have been saying, like, look, do you see what you have done to keep people out of the kingdom? You've told them that this is closed, and have you done much different? Have you ever sat through a communion service in most evangelical churches? There's an altar call ahead of time because we tell people if they take and have sin, they will die in church. I grew up in those environments. That is terrifying, and it's no different with the treasury. The next thing that Jesus says that's really interesting is he he references in this, if I be lifted up, or when I am lifted up, and he says, essentially, that I will draw all people unto me. Uh, verse 27, they don't understand what Jesus is saying about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do not do anything of my own. So, we need to talk about this for a minute, and this is going to be kind of where we wind up. people have ever heard, if I be lifted up, I draw all people unto me. Pretty well-known, pretty common passage, right? How many people have ever heard that in a worship context? Right? We're going to lift up the name of Jesus, and then he's going to draw all people unto himself. Is that fair? I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I think that's fair. I think that it's funny when it's that way. Interestingly enough, he, when he says here, when you lift up the Son of Man. The lifting up is the cross. When you lift me up, he's talking about his death. We think if we lift him up, Jesus, we lift up your name because when we do, you draw all people. And that's but I, I'd like to think about this contextually. That's a lot different. Worshiping Jesus is much easier than following Jesus. Following Jesus requires death. You can worship Jesus and hold on to your grudges forgiveness and your anger and your pride and your bitterness. But if you follow him and are lifted up, what he's saying is, will you bring a death to it, which is death? 
so when he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all men will be drawn. What he's saying is, and think about what this literally means, because it would actually say all of creation. So when I be lifted up, I will draw all people, all creation unto myself. Do you realize he's saying that retroactively and proactively, everybody is in Jesus from the point of the cross. So we don't ask Jesus into our life. He has already brought us into his. We don't invite Jesus into our life. He's already brought us into his. If I be lifted up, that was done. Then all men are brought unto me. And then he says, will you carry the cross that I carry? Will you be willing to be lifted up in the same way? This is a profound statement because Jesus, they would have known exactly what he was saying. When he talks about the cross, he mentions the brazen serpent. Does anybody remember the brazen serpent story? In Once again, the great story of Israel is the Exodus. In the Exodus story, they're in the middle of the wilderness. These scorpions and snakes start stinging and biting them. Does anybody remember the story? So they take one of these and they take a brass serpent and stick it in the ground. And anybody that's been bit that looks at it gets healed. The very same thing that caused their pain and death becomes the transformational device for their healing when looked upon. You should sit with that for just a second. Jesus says, like the brazen serpent, the very same thing that is supposed to symbolize death and devastation and violence will be the marker and representation of life and resurrection and healing and restoration of all things. Can you imagine how ticked off Rome would have been that the same instrument that is supposed to be a terrorist device for violent, destructive deaths becomes the icon of our faith? Like, if the point of the cross was to terrorize people and keep them under the thumb of Rome to not oppose the system of Rome, that becomes the icon of our faith. We took a violent device and said, this is the sign of our healing. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's saying here, in the same way that if you look upon, that's why Jesus says, uh, that's, and that's why Paul references He's referencing Isaiah. Look upon the one who you pierced. Why? Because there's healing in that. And in the same way, we follow that. So the next thing Jesus is doing is he's showing us this cruciform model of what it means to follow him. So cruciformity, literally meaning cross-shaped. When we speak of a cruciform gospel or cruciform love, we're reflecting on the meaning of John, 1 John chapter 3.16. This is how we know the love of God. Death. Like, Jesus showed victory by losing. I, I know that's like, that, we're not supposed to talk about that, but it's just true. Like, we want to skip straight to Easter. In our own life, we really want 
Everybody wants the miracle story. But Jesus says the way out is always through. This is the way of Jesus. So the way we see the clearest form of, of what God looks like is in laying down and in pouring out and in humbling yourself. That's what cruciformity looks like. The mind of Christ transforms all human suffering. Could you please hear what I say in light of the day and age we live in? We have a hopeful gospel if we would just let it be. Because the mind of Christ transforms all human suffering by identifying completely with the human predicament. God doesn't tell us to get more spiritual. God came to show us humanity. God came to show us what it looks like to be transformed. God came to show us solidarity and standing there in it from beginning to end. This is the real meaning of the crucifixion. The cross at that moment becomes not a singular event of what Jesus did so that now everything's great and easy and I have no problems and I don't ever have to give anything up or die again. He's showing us the model of what it looks like to follow him. And in that way, it's not a singular event for Christians. This is a form of resistance. Being the person who dies is how we resist. The striving of the world for power, control, and privilege. This is a cruciform shape to all of reality. Loss precedes all renewal. Emptiness makes way for new and filling. Every transformation in the universe requires surrendering of the previous form. You hear what I said? Every transformation in the universe. Every single one requires a surrendering of the previous form. Unless a seed goes into the ground and what? Dies. Life cannot come. Every single thing. Do you realize that nothing, that they actually can prove now, scientists can prove that nothing really dies. Nothing in the universe actually dies. Everything that dies in some way gives way to a new point of life. Now, in, in many cases, it's not going to look like it, is, like it previously looked. Even energy now, they're proving that when energy is exerted, it's not lost, but it's rejuvenated through the universe itself, through the earth itself. You, you, when, some, when a tree dies in the middle of the forest, what happens? That tree goes into the ground, and as it dies, it decomposes and actually gives new life for something else to come out of it. That's the way this thing works. But we like to hold on to our form, don't we? Because I've got a package and an image that I'm working really hard to preserve. That's the thing we lay down. So Jesus leads us in this way. The cross of Jesus symbolizes his willingness, and this is where it gets interesting to me, to hold two seeming opposites together. That's why the cross is two lines going in opposite or different directions. Because it's, it's about opposites. It's about things that don't seem to fit together. It's about not saying, I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I'm not going to follow the donkey and I'm not going to follow the elephant. I follow the lamb. 
I'm not going to hate the immigrant and I'm not going to hate our government for what they're doing in these situations. I'm not going to be this and I'm not going to be this. I'm going to be the one who stands in the in-between spaces where those cross-sections are and cruciformly pour myself out on behalf of peace and joy and the kingdom coming. That's what we're called to. But you can't do that and not die. And you also can't do that and not expect to be crucified for it. If they hated him, he says, they will also hate you. You can't get in the in-between space and expect to not be misunderstood, to not be miscategorized, to not be mislabeled, and to not ultimately have to give yourself for it. You probably will not be able to keep your reputation completely intact in the way you would like and stand in the in-between spaces. And if we think we can, then, then we're missing what the gospel of Jesus does. It's completely countercultural in every possible way. And we're going to say things that make no sense, like, I think we need to have a peaceful lifestyle and nonviolent. And immediately people are going to say, well, how can you do that and, and defend the American way? I don't know. I just know that following Jesus looks different, and I need his imagination to be able to see it. And I know that bombs aren't in his kingdom. Now, does that mean I have an answer for how we're supposed to live that out in our government? Absolutely not. And that's part of what they hate us for. Because they want answers. Right? We want certitude and answers. We want, nope, you have this and this and this and this and then this and this. It's like, no, I want an imagination that comes from heaven. And I want a loving lifestyle that says, you know what? And if it means that I get crucified so that love can be demonstrated, then in the way of Dr. King, I'll be the one that lays that out. There's never been anybody that I can find in history who stood in the in-between spaces and refused to be labeled and refused to be in some way engrafted into somebody's boxes and buckets and parties and groups and denominations that didn't give their life for it. So Jesus invites us into this mystery. It's a mystery called resurrection. And interestingly enough, in the early church, when they said resurrection, they meant crucifixion too. Resurrection is the whole kingdom. So Jesus invites us into this so that we can be freed from the endless cycle of protecting our pain. I have to say that again. Jesus invites us into the cruciform way of dying so that we can be freed and liberated from the need to protect our pain. Where we no longer become the victim and we no longer search for a scapegoat. Where when I'm in I don't become the, my identity doesn't become the victim of a situation. And I also no longer look for somebody outside to call out to doing something to me. I don't need to find an oppressor and I don't make myself into the victim. But where I hold what it is that's happening and I allow life to come out of it. 
look at pain as a, I, one of the best examples I've heard is like a basketball game. And you're in a relationship with somebody, and what happens is somebody hands you the basketball. They hand you pain in some way. They hurt you. They wound you. What we're designed to do, because we don't want to hold it. It's like hot potato. What do you do? We just talk. Except in our culture, what do we do? I don't give it back in the same quotient it was given to me. I have to up the ante. I hit back twice as hard. Or I find somebody else to throw that pain to. If we refuse to allow this cruciform lifestyle to transform us through this pain, we will always transmit that pain. The pain is these things, these challenges, these dying, these moments of laying ourselves down, of letting go of our ego, of letting go of our preference, of letting go of our opinions, and letting go of, of all the stuff that comes with it to where we have nothing to protect, nothing to possess, where we can absolutely just lay it down. If we do not let that go, the pain, will, we will just simply transmit it to somebody else. We just pass it on. Hurt people, hurt people. Freed people, free people. That's the gospel. Christians are meant to be the visible compassion of God on the earth more than those who are just simply going to heaven. Think about what that might look like. That rather than a Christian being defined as somebody who's just going to heaven, what would it look like if we are the sign of the visible compassion and empathy of God on the earth? We are meant to be leavened to raise the standard of what's possible. We're meant to be salt that seasons the meal around us. We're meant to be light that illuminates dark places. A Christian is invited, not required, to accept and live the cruciform shape of all reality. It is not a duty or a requirement to live this way. It's a freedom. It is no longer about quid pro quo where it's transactional, where you have to do this or else. You don't have to do this. And you can still love God and not fear laying your life down. You can actually not follow Jesus and still love God. That is beautiful. You can actually still love God and not follow the way of Jesus. But there is a freedom that exists in laying yourself down in this cruciform fashion. If I be lifted up, that draws people unto God because it breaks loose. People realize, oh, wait, these people don't have an agenda. They're not trying to control me. They're not trying to manipulate me. They're not trying to get something out of me. All they want to do is pour out love and pour out peace and pour out joy. And then we demonstrate the way, the truth, and it leads to life. But if it's if we don't start with it, see, we just want the truth. Because we think truth is a destination. We think of truth in certitudes, like truth is something I arrive at. I'm going to study a scripture until I come to the truth. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because it's a way. It's something to be lived. 
And at the end of the day, if what truth I arrive at doesn't change my way, what good is it? And most of our truth did not lead to life. Most of our truth led to judgment. It became a weapon that we could use to judge somebody else for not having the truth we wanted. Rather than an invitation to life. Jesus ends it with them as we close with this really, really interesting idea of what cruciformity is. So cruciformity is is this self-giving, radically forgiving, sacrificial love. That's what it means to be a Christian. Self-giving, radically forgiving, sacrificial love. And he follows this up with wild, wacky idea where he says to them, they keep arguing with him about who his father is, and he's going, he's like, yeah, 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 I understand. You're not of God, your father. You're of your father, the devil. Can you imagine how offensive this would have been to the people who are the religious leaders sitting behind the money? Like, these are the guys. I don't, we don't have good example of this in the Protestant church, but, like, he's the pope. Like, that would be like calling the pope the devil, which... As a good Christian evangelical, I hear quite all the time. Like, I didn't think he was the devil. He was just being a jerk. But that's a whole other conversation. But, like, that idea, it would have been, like, shocking. Like, the devil? And Jesus says, yeah. But because if you, and they said, no, no, no. We're, we're, our father is Abraham. And he said, if your father was Abraham, you wouldn't do what you're doing. Because the, the, the actual blessing of Abraham will be blessed so that all other nations of the earth can be blessed. You you become chosen so that you can show what it means for everybody else to know they're chosen. So Jesus says, you're not following the way of Abraham, your father. You're following the way of the devil. Because if you were following the way of Abraham, it would look like self-giving, radically forgiving, sacrificial love. Now, we need to, as we close, I need to make a couple points about this. I'm going to chat for a bit. Um, So, Jesus says this really interesting thing where he says, you're children of the devil. And we have lots of really unique ideas about what that means, right? So, immediately we think of like somewhere between... um, Poltergeist movie and an Ozzy Osbourne concert. So, like one of the one the the, the idea that we have is somewhere something that's it, it maybe isn't like pitchfork and a pointy tail, but it's probably not far from it. And and um, and we think about like um, you know what it might look like where there's you know witches and oracles with pigs heads on pikes and. We think about all this really wacky, weird stuff, and we think that, oh, man, that's what he's talking about. Well, interestingly enough, the word devil is really unique because it's, it's shatan, which is in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And, and let me give you a few definitions of this word. And if you can't, just bear with me. I know this is, a, this is not the way you're supposed to land a plane, but we're going to try. So, um, 
so if you can just set aside the, the, the Looney Tunes image of like the angel on one shoulder and, and the devil on the other trying to tempt you into doing whatever, you know. Um, so in the Latin, the term Satan, Satan, the devil, is a uh, is categorical. It's where we get our word for categorize. Jesus has just got done telling them, I judge no one. We spend most of our They're against us, they're in, they're out, they're on our side, they're not on our side. Labeling people takes up probably the majority of our mental space. I'm safe, I'm threatened, I mean, all this stuff is happening, and it's happening in nanoseconds in our minds. And they have just got done arguing about who's in and who's out, about who uh, their father is, and Jesus has just totally destroyed their religious take on how God works because they were cool with God as their father, but Jesus just got done saying God is everybody's father, and it's messing with them. And then he said, if you were a, a child of your father Abraham, you would understand that you get to know your chosen so that you can tell everybody they're chosen. You get to know God is your father so that you can tell everybody that God is their father. And they said, no, that can't be because they're out. And he said, you're demonstrating that you're a child of the devil or the one who categorizes people. Now, interestingly enough, there's a second meaning for the word devil. The second meaning for the word devil that you find in the Greek, uh, in the Hebrew, it's actually uh, a transliteration of the Hebrew, is accuser. satanic when we're accusing somebody. We are partnering with Satan when we're accusing people. Does that stop you? That like kind of like does something inside where it's like, hmm, I don't like how that sounds. Yep, me too. <laughs> That's literally what the word means. The accuser. In every language that we have after New Testament Greek, Satan is just the one who accuses, the one who accuses. And what I would suggest is that accusing and categorizing, man, that's a match made in heaven, isn't it? I can accuse somebody, you're this, and then once I can assess them and assume who they are, I, in case anybody's curious, we call this discernment. Then I can categorize them, label them, put them in a bucket no longer have to think about them as having the same father as me. So Jesus ends with this really unique phrasing to say, nope, if you were children of your father Abraham or children of God your father, you would be going to the Samaritans and Hittites and Jebusites and everybody all the islands and saying, do you know who he is? 
from the weakness of our personal pride. And you know what they said to him as a reply? You are a Samaritan who has a devil. That literally is their reply. Do you realize that we just said you're a son of the one who categorizes, and they did what? Categorized him. too busy trying to figure out if Muslim people are praying to the same God as we are. Or we're over here trying to figure out if, if this person hasn't prayed the sinner's prayer and says that they're an agnostic or an atheist, if they're going to end up in the same hollow home as I am. Maybe they'll be there, but they're just not going to be as close to the throne as me. I've got hip seats at the front. They have to look at the Jumbotron to see Jesus. Like, that's what we think. And so Jesus is saying, like, that's not what this is about. Your job is not to figure out who's in, who's out, what's going on, what's not going on. Your job is to tell them you have an Abba that has always been your Abba. And there's nothing you could do to stop making him, to make him stop being your Abba. There's nothing you could do to make him see you as less beloved as he sees you right now. And there's nothing you could do to make him see you as more beloved than he sees you right now. That's the message of Jesus. And so he says at that point, we don't have to categorize, we don't have to label, we don't have to assume. You're just me, brother. And I guarantee you, if you're loving like Jesus, it's going to feel like dying for you. It's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be, um, you're not going to be able to schedule it well. You know, we're not going to be, it's going to feel like it doesn't work or, man, this is, it's one of those conversations. It's going to, you're going to need to do it at times when, when you're running late and in a hurry. Happened to me yet, uh, day before yesterday. I, I, I saw somebody and they looked at me and I knew that I was just going to talk to them. Not say anything bad against them. Just to just to talk to them, be kind to them, and I thought I'm in a hurry and I don't have that time. And that is such a small thing, but those things. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.